Welcome, welcome, ladies and gents. Carl Fitzgerald's my name. We're going to slide into an interview I did with Wendell Fitzgerald, a San Francisco and geonomist interested in the value of the earth and why it's being hocked and who's making all the money from it. That's what we focus on here at the Renegade Economists on 3CR. Sit back. This is a really good analysis of why we're so persistent. Over 100 years we've been running Next Tuesday, we have our 118th dinner. It'd be great to meet some 3CR people there. Check us out, earthsharing.org.au. Wendell and I are having a scintillating kitchen table conversation about how you approach economics and how, you know, are people really interested in this? How, how do you get it across to them, Wendell? Uh, often people say to me, well, I don't understand economics or I'm not an economist. Um, and I just don't understand it. And I've heard this so much that I'm now, now I'm angry. I, this is how I take this is that, uh, because the next thing out of their breath is, Jill, I don't either want to talk about it or because I don't understand it, it's too difficult. Uh, let's not go delve into it further. So it's really, uh, in my experience, a, an excuse. And so what I think the truth of it is, <clears throat> and I'm now starting to, to get into people's face about this a bit, is when, when when somebody says I don't understand or I'm not an economist, um, I'm saying uh, that's just not so. It's absolutely not so uh, because our lives are like fish in water, uh, as it said. The fish don't. You know, so it's said uh, uh, that the the fish don't understand the water. But so yes, we swim in economic waters all the time. Our lives uh, are nothing. It's totally about economics and in. in, in Virtually every way. So spell out in a little more detail why we all swim in these economic waters. Give the listeners some examples of how economics affects their everyday life. Uh, in order to, uh, to live, um, to, to be here, you, uh, once you've, you get out of your family home, you have to have a place to live. You either have to buy a place or you have to rent a place. So every month, if you're a renter, you have to come up with some money. Some money has to transfer out of your pocket into somebody else's pocket to just to have a place to live. Uh, you have to eat. You have to pay uh, f- money for food. You go to work uh, to earn a living so that you have the money to pay for the, all the necessities. All of that is about economics. There's, a, there's a economic activity everywhere you turn. You take the bus to work. It's, uh, you know, how did the bus get produced? Uh, you know, how is it being paid for? You're, you know, if you've got a fare... That's paying for part of it, but then the community is paying the other part that isn't paid by the fa- – all of these things. Uh, everywhere you look, you, there's an economic issue taking place, some kind of transaction taking place, um, and, and our lives uh, are, are just about that. I don't think that in the last uh, 15 years, uh, if I ever went to a coffee shop that I sat down and ever listened to the discussion – uh, around me that it wasn't, a, 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 at least in, in America, was about uh, the cost of housing, about uh, all of that. It was about speculating in housing. It was, it was such topic number one. People were, this is how you make money, get a hold of, of a piece of real estate and, and sell it and make money at it. 
or how much that cost, all, or the mortgage cost, all of this, topic number one. So when somebody says to me, well, they don't understand, um, I, I just, no, uh-uh, that's not so. What, what you're trying to tell me is you don't want to talk about it, or it's intimidating, or you, you, you know, because I can speak about it and you can't, you might be, uh, you, don't, you don't want to be shown up, you know, to, to not to be uh, intelligent, all of that kind of stuff, sure. Uh, but the truth of it is that everybody understands and the proof of it for me is, uh, well, uh, I, I, can, I will engage you in a discussion or a, a lecture or something, and I guarantee you that within two minutes that uh, you will have a thought about what I'm talking about and an, and an opinion at least, and you, will, and you will voice that opinion. You actually will articulate that opinion, and usually the opinion will be in opposition to what I'm saying, and you will be able to argue very seriously about that, whether correct or not. So that's the proof to me of just almost every time people have an enormous amount of store of knowledge and experience that is right out of their own, their own life uh, that's very, very current uh, and, and very alive. So economics is alive the, uh, in everybody's experience and everybody's life, whether you can speak about it or not. So if you can't speak about it, well, then, you, then you, what you do is you respond to discussion about it or what you hear about it. Uh, on the news, there's all kinds of uh, things being said that uh, maybe not titled economics, but it's all about that. Uh, and currently, there's the uh, discussion about health care in this country. Well, how the, the big discussion is how do we afford this? How do we pay for it? Well, there's, that is an economic question. And everybody's got all kinds of opinions about that to the point where the whole issue now is, you know, it looks to me almost as if, well, maybe we don't really care about health care. What we really care about is how we pay for this thing, and it might cost some money, and there's no answer to that. So I don't, you know, as of uh, uh, early August 2009, I don't know that we're actually going to do this. And if we do something, it'll be pretty lame is my guess. And it will all be an economic issue, uh, the cost of it. Speaking to Wendell Fitzgerald, one of the elders of this movement from San Francisco. And we're going to go back to it. So those coffee table discussions, how, how they changed. Here in uh, California, the world's eighth largest economy, reading reports that there's 19 million vacant homes here and one of the solutions to the economic malaise is to destroy many of those vacant homes, to bulldoze them. What are people talking about now around the coffee table? Is there any understanding that this economic boom-bust framework must be reformed by looking at the real foundations to it all? I, I guess my opinion at this point is I think people are stunned. They have been hit on the head with a baseball bat, and they really don't know what, is, what to think. They were thinking that it was very simple to make uh, a, a fair profit pretty quickly by investing in real estate in all of the different forms that that can be done. And that has betrayed every one of them. Uh, every one of us who live in this state have lost, if we've owned anything, uh, whether 
it's real estate or a, a portfolio of, of stocks and bonds, everybody's lost value. And some have lost their shirts. And again, now <laughs> these vacant homes are indica in, in, indications of people who have, I guess, have not been able to pay the mortgage. And now they're either the banks own them or or I guess, the, I guess the homes that are being bulldozed are really homes that had been, that had been built and it couldn't even be, hadn't even been sold yet. So the, the developers are the ones bulldozing these homes. That's, that's my understanding of that. And, and that's just wildly insane. Uh, last year I was living in Las Vegas, uh, in a very lovely part, new part of Las Vegas. And um, it was ev pretty much every fourth or fifth home was in foreclosure, owned by the bank and that kind of thing. And, uh, and in Las Vegas, if you've followed any of the uh, discussion about this or literature, Las Vegas is one of the major places where, where the, this housing boom was the biggest, and this is where the, the biggest uh, uh, crash has happened, one of the biggest places, as evidenced by vacant homes. And the homes that, that I vacated when I moved away from there, we went and looked at it some months later, and the owner had walked away from it. Then we were the, their last tenants. They couldn't find other tenants. And they, they stripped the house of all the, its um, uh, goodies, uh, all the appliances and all the curtains and all of the <laughs> everything that was movable. And the house was a shell. And they turned off the water and all the landscaping was dead. And you know, anyway, that was, I was blown away by the, how this, this actually lovely piece of property, this lovely home and its grounds were now uh, essentially, it was open to vandalism. Uh, and apparently a lot of these homes in that part of the world are being uh, uh, vandalized, stripped of their copper piping and all that. It's just, it's, it's pretty lawless, uh, especially in these out, outlying sprawled communities. So um, I, I really don't, I haven't heard much intelligent conversation around uh, at the coffee shops or places uh, that I've been frequenting, uh, unfortunately. Uh, of course, I talk to, the, when I can talk to folks about the ideas that, uh, that I know about, that, uh, that uh, my interviewer has, has talked to everybody about, uh, about taxing land values and untaxing everything else. Uh, and that seems to be getting a, a better hearing these days. Uh, and I've been at this for going on 35 or so years. And so, and I knew that um, it was going to take a real crisis for people to listen. I think this is kind of the typical thing. Uh, for humanity, we don't we won't listen uh, unless there's some real problem, some real pain being experienced, and here we are, in that time. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. Of course, because land value is the only value that goes up when 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 speculation takes place. It doesn't even have to be speculation. It's going to be years before that crazy speculation hits again. But it the value that's going to go up is land value. I, I think everybody who's, who's listening to this channel understands that houses don't go up in value. The, the instant that they're built, they start to depreciate. You have to maintain them. <coughs> uh, and unless you maintain them and add value to them, their value, the value of improvements, do not go up. So what's going up? It's land value. And uh, the, the brilliant thing about that is that the, the community creates that value. So um, if the community needs a source of revenue to pay for government services, what better source of revenue than to go after the, that value that the community creates? That's, that's the, the basic argument uh, and proposition that we're putting forth. Nobody argues with that. Nobody can argue with that. Well, how, you know, how, uh, and anybody who does argue with that is then saying, 
I'd rather have uh, I, I support I'd rather have something for nothing. I support the principle of taking a value that I don't create and uh, and taking the uh, other values that people do create from labor and capital investment and to use that as the source of revenue to pay for services that make my land more valuable. Mm. This is a bankrupt kind of uh, uh, of argument. So nobody can make that argument. They don't do it. They just don't talk about it. The system of parliament, and originally the upper house was only for landlords. I heard an interesting story about your Californian senators here. Uh, how uh, did they get the finance to enter the Senate? Well, our two senators, um, Diane Feinstein and Barbara Boxer, turns out are uh, v- very wealthy people via their marriages. And it happens to be that these, for, these very large fortunes that they have uh, are from real estate. So it's, uh, it's really fascinating to see people who are, are – and these are both Democrats, uh, which is, you know, good. Um, uh, but then to see that the, the, their main personal economic interests are based on – Real estate, which, you know, as I've said before, the real money to be made in real estate is from the increase of land value or if you're buying and selling or the collection of community-created land rent, ground rent, in addition, of course, to the rents on, on uh, apartments and commercial buildings. That th- those are real investments, and those are earned incomes, but that part of the, the, the rents that come from the ground rent is all unearned, and it's huge. And... Uh, so the, the way we talk about this idea, is, as you know, Carl, is that uh, all of this private collection of, of community-created ground rent is an unearned income. It's a free lunch. And historically, what, what has happened with the, the landlords, the owners of, of real estate, really the, the landlords, as we call them. I don't know why we don't call them building lords, but they're, you know, now it's well-known <laughs> earthwide as landlords. And uh, all of these people have been, they're wealthy because they collect this, this unearned uh, increment. So it's ironic when you get a, uh, somebody in that position who then is voted in as somebody for the people, as Democrats tend to be, and then they are promoting programs that are not paid for by collection of community-created ground rent, and all of those programs in the nation increase land values. So the general idea is that all government programs, whether they're local or state or federal, they all uh, increase land values. Uh, so it looks to me like a, it's, it looks like a conflict of interest to me. <laughs> if, if not more than, you know, if at least it's a conflict of interest. And at, yes. uh, it's, be, you know, and so that this issue isn't so obvious to to the great bulk of people is is you know has always interested me how it is that something so obvious as uh, the fact that we the commu- we as members of the community uh, create this value and we we're giving it away and then we are being encouraged and convinced that we uh, must pay out of our earned incomes from labor and from our uh, real investment, real capital investment in real things, houses and apartments and, you know, real productive things. 
uh, th that the profit from that, from labor and real capital investment, has to go to pay for public services that make land more valuable. <clears throat> it is such a simple set of ideas that how that hasn't actually caught on and caused a storm a long, a long time ago is, I, I find, truly astounding. I've, and for the whole 35-plus years that I've been involved with this, I, I just don't get that. I don't understand how that isn't such a simple thing to grasp. Half the people in this country, at least 40%, let's say, and more now with the, the foreclosures, don't own any land. So if they're paying taxes, out of the only thing they have taxes to pay out of is their earned incomes from labor and real capital investment, if they have any, and all of that is going to pay for services that make their land more valuable. And if they're renters, if they're not owners, they're renters, and so their rents are increased by the services that they pay for. <laughs> so renters pay twice, uh, in essence, um, maybe more. And uh, and how that is how that isn't just so obvious, as certainly when it's stated. I don't know that it was obvious to me before it was pointed out, but when it was pointed out, uh, it was clear. I mean, there was nothing. And, it, and there's been nothing in all these years to, to indicate that there's anything incorrect about that simple observation and that analysis. And the two senators from California are women. I, you know, yeah, that's, isn't that wonderful? Here are women in Congress, in, in government. And yet their, their whole, the basis of their wealth is what I would, you know, at least in, in large measure, is an exploitation of the very people that they are sworn to serve. Now, I don't know if they understand this. Do they not understand this? Anyway, I, years and years ago, I had a chat with uh, Diane Feinstein when she was a supervisor in uh, San Francisco. She was still at that level, uh, destined for great things uh, later on in her life. And I asked her, gee, wouldn't you be interested in talking about this idea of taxing land values? And she essentially laughed at me and blew me off. <clears throat> and I don't know what she was thinking, but I, that, the, that was a very strong <laughs> uh, a memory that I still hold of that little interaction. And then later on I found, oh, she's, her husband is a huge landowner. Well, a property owner. I don't know if there's a connection there, but it, uh, uh, it's, it's strange to me. That's a new uh, realm you've opened up for me. Thanks very much. We're talking to Wendell Fitzgerald here. No relation. But, uh, Wendell, you've been an economist over the years, and this is one of the massive conflict of interest that I'm concerned about, is that every day in the press we hear from economists who work for banks. I think the edu economic education has been made to be difficult. To me, it is... <clears throat> And just as long as we're, uh, I'm talking about that, my, my uh, experience in, at co uh, the college I went to was, well, maybe I'll study economics. That was one of the possibilities, and I took a course, and I nearly flunked it. I just couldn't get what they were talking about. So some years later, then, I came across this uh, economics uh, that, uh, as explained by Henry George, the f fundamental economics, and the light went on. I said, oh, this is what this was all about. And ever since then, I could read any economics text or article and understand what they were talking about. It made sense. So I, how I, I guess my conclusion about that was that the way economics was taught was, was designed 
to be uh, incomprehensible, except to those you know very few people who really push through to to somehow it, it grabs them and they uh, and they do pursue the the, the study, <laughs> and of course then years later I would talk to people who had gotten degrees in economics and I and, and I'm being facetious here but I thought that many of these people were brain damaged uh, that there was some there was a real disconnect between. Uh, their their life and their thinking and the, just ordinary real life experience on the planet, the connection with with the earth and the necessity for access to to land, not as just as a basic fundamental principle. <clears throat> and often I got the the response from these folks, well, "Oh, land is no longer important in economics." <laughs> and at the time, these things people were saying these things to me. I just had no way. I just it rocked me back so far. I had no a, a way to even think about what they were talking about because it's too obvious that land of, is still absolutely important in economics. Uh, everybody lives on land. You can't do anything without doing it on land, and you have to pay for access to that land if you don't own it. And everything that we that we have comes from the raw materials from the land. So our schools are teaching that land and our connection with the land, with the earth, with the creation is no longer important. And how utterly, in, in, that's a piece of insanity in my, in my book. So when you put that piece of what the economics of land is, oh, then the light goes on. This is what it's about. It's land, labor, capital. Those are the fundamentals, still the fundamentals of economics. And once you understand them and the economics, specifically the economics of land and the community created nature of land value and, and of course, why people would want to go after that because it's an unearned income, it's a free lunch. Of course, if you can get a hold of it, go do it. You know, we're not stupid. If you can, you know, it's the easiest way to make a living while it's happening. <clears throat> and then that gives you the, some fundamental ideas about the, the basic dynamics in, in the community, in the world. And then, then you have to look at the, finan- the whole financial thing and the, mon- the monetary system is, is a whole other system built on top of that. That's a little more complicated to talk about. I'm not, a, uh, I'm not as facile with those ideas as I am with the land question. But I'm, I, I understand it enough now that the, my opinion is that the land issue is still number one because it's, it, it is utterly fundamental. And the monetary question is certainly maybe number two. I'm not, I wouldn't argue with anybody about it. Certainly they're right up there. Incredibly important, as in, in incredibly important fundamental issues. So, as far as the monetary discussion is, uh, if you solve the monetary problem and not the land problem, that's, that would not solve poverty. That would not solve the, the the really most fundamental issue, which is in the real world, you got to have access to land in one way or the other to be productive, to have, make a living. Money is incredibly important, but that alone doesn't solve that, the, the land question. In my sense, my understanding of the earth is that even privately owned, no land ever really falls out of the commons. The land is the commons, however it's owned. And, but I don't have any argument with private ownership of land because there is a very important individual need for access to land and private exclusive use of land. I have no argument with that. But what, is, what still remains common in privately owned land is land value. Uh, and what I never hear discussed in the, in the discussion about the commons is that land value is the commons. Maybe the land itself is in private ownership, 
that isn't going to be isn't going to be owned by the by the public. But and I say it's not necessary for the land or the natural resource to be owned. Let it be privately owned. But its value is the commons, and that is what should be publicly owned. And you, you, you go after that merely by taxing it. And the mechanism for taxing land value via property tax, via income taxes, is already in place. These, there's nothing, no new wheel has to be invented. All we have to do is change our existing property tax and income tax laws and administration to, to focus on land value. Since the community creates land value, taxing it, taking it back to pay for public services is, is economic justice based on the principle that whoever creates the value should get the value. Whoever sows should reap. So the individual, if you're working as a laborer, you should reap 100% of what you've sown, keep 100% of your income. Uh, if you're a capital investor in real capital tools and equipment and factories, you should keep that. You need to be paid for that contribution. But the community creates land value, and the community should be able to reap that. It sows uh, land value and should reap it. I, I love the discussion about the fact that um, the, 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 the store of knowledge, of technical knowledge that has come down to each generation from all the past generations is the commons. It's a little abstract. I, I think that's so. Uh, but the actual literal uh, way that that shows up is in land value. Everything attached to what human beings do, all the work that we do and all the knowledge that we have, makes land in general, at least if it's not being used, it, it, it creates a situation where it, the, the possibility of a piece of land being productive is, comes out of the fact that if it were used by the application of labor and our technology, and all, which is what we've inherited from, from all the past, that would make that land even more valuable. And that is measurable directly, literally, in land value. So that anybody who wants to make the, our, our heritage of technology back, you know, to, to recognize the, the commons in that can easily be gotten at by taxing land values. There's nothing, I, I, I can't see any other way of making uh, that common heritage, to, you know, re restoring it to common ownership. And podcasters, stay tuned for the extended interview with Wendell Fitzgerald. I'm going to talk a bit in the next half hour about the conflict of interest that bankers faced as well. So bankers and conflict of interest alongside members of parliament who are also landlords. All our public services funded by the workers' taxes makes their land more valuable, making it harder for the everyday person to buy a piece of the pie to enter the great Australian dream. Uh, Economics for Activists coming up September the 8th. Keep that in mind. Economics for Activists, September the 8th, investigating well, following the trail of money to the core of many campaign issues activists are focused on, be a bit of statistical help, but also some uh, basic understanding of, of economic terminology. Uh, yes, so thank you very much for listening to The Renegade Economist. My name's Carl Fitzgerald. Uh, we will see you next week with more on this uh, expose of America from my recent travels there. Alrighty, thanks very much.
So we're off on a little bit of a tangent. The question was, uh, what do I think about these the economists who are speaking in <laughs> for the banks? Well, uh, it's really interesting that uh, the banks, part of what banks do is provide money for purchasing real estate. And a major part of that purchase price is the cost of land. And as land values go up, when speculation sets in, in these about eight, these 18 to 20-year cycles, near the end of those cycles, the land speculation really gets rampant, as we've seen. The land prices are put up, pushed up so high that it finally busts. Until that happens, the banks are lending money against this increased value. They love it. The more, the more value of land that has to be paid for when people purchase it, the more loans they make, the more money they make. And the fact you know, that banks create money out of, uh, uh, out of thin air and then require it to be paid back with interest is, is kind of, now talk about a conflict of interest, to talk about the commons, that whole, that whole thing, the, the process of creating money should be a public, that's, that, that belongs to the, to the public and has been privatized a long time ago. That's kind of a, another discussion. I think that the, the banks are, and the whole monetary system is an incredible conflict of interest in relationship to the, to the earth. The bankers are in the business of funding land speculation. If there wasn't a way to borrow money for a, a new buyer of real estate to buy, then there would be no land speculation. There wouldn't be any turnover of real estate. So I think the bankers, uh, whether they know it or not, I'm sure at the higher levels, they understand the, the system that, that is in place, uh, that, that as a value, uh, the value of, of land goes up and the value of stocks go up, whether or not there's an increased productivity of the land or that the stocks are really more valuable, uh, which they are not. Um, the, the values are driven up merely because there's a bunch of money around that people can borrow, at, at, especially at lower interest when interests are low, to invest in things that uh, – and it merely drives up the cost of these things without any uh, concomitant uh, uh, accompanying – increase of productivity, of real value. So uh, what, what insanity to have to pay more for a piece of land that is no more useful than it ever was. It, it, you know, land becomes more useful in, as the community improves overall, as there's more people and, there's, and, and, and technology allows more productivity of all kinds. Uh, but the, and that's the real value, the, the, real, the, mark, the real value of land that's related to its productivity uh, there is there is such a value, 
and that is completely created by the community. And then because individuals can put that in their pocket and not have to pay that over to the community, they then can see, well, in a couple of years it's going to increase and I can put that value in my pocket. That's all the motivation there is for people to invest in land, in real estate, which is land speculation. To, that's all the motivation they need. Well, I'm gonna, I can make money without – I put money in now and wait a couple of years without doing anything, and I'm going to be able to, to pocket more. We're not stupid. If, if, that, if that was actually doable without some kind of negative consequence – Make, you know, get something for nothing, uh, I, you know, I don't want to have to work hard. So I can see, I understand that, but the result is that if all that's happening is, your, is that the value, the cost of acquisition of, uh, of, ac- of access to land has driven, been driven up without an increase of the productivity of the land, it's, it's, it's created a situation where finally uh, it's all done at the expense of the people who do, are productive, all at the expense of labor and the expense of real capital investment because there's no real value behind uh, speculative land value. It has, to, it has to pop at some point, uh, and this does so periodically about every 18 to 20 years my, is my understanding, and that's pretty, pretty well documented by uh, Georgists and others who uh, you know, clearly look at this, and it's inevitable, and it's – and it's self-evident. It's obvious. So people who were prior to this in the last couple of years were saying, oh, there isn't no problem. Don't worry about it. You know, what's obvious is, is not obvious. It's not so. There isn't a bubble. Don't worry about it. This is what some of these people were saying. These people feel, look like idiots uh, or, or worse. I mean, what were, who were these people? Who, what interests were they uh, promoting? Uh, and if they were speaking for banks or for the – monetary system or for the realist, you know, these are, uh, I, I don't know, uh, shills. Um, I, I hesitate to call them criminals, but uh, it's it, it tantamount to a, a vicious scheme to defraud the masses of people uh, to put money in think, say, thinking that it's not going to crash, and millions of people put money in and it crashed. <clears throat> Boy, there's a conflict of interest. Whoever said any of that stuff, uh, I mean, I, I'm hoping that they're listening, and I hope that they um, had, are looking back at what, what was their motivation for saying this. If it was just because they were misinformed or uninformed, fine. But if they, if they really had a sense of, uh, of what they were doing, then they need, to, they need to come forward and apologize. And they need to come forward and and speak this kind of same kind of thing that I'm talking about here. I'm, this is not difficult to talk about uh, because what's going to happen is it's going to happen again. It's going to be re, uh, reestablished. There's no, there's no indication that I can see uh, at the federal level or any other level in this country uh, that anybody's questioning the whole business of, of uh, the real estate market. It's it's because it's it's this this it's the intelligent thing to do. It's where the smart money goes. <clears throat> well, there's nothing more corrupt than a than a society, I think that to, you know to make to think that it's really really the best idea possible. The most intelligent idea is to invest in something uh, in, in a value that one does not create uh, and collect a value that you haven't earned that you haven't created. That, that ultimately has to go boom-bust periodically at the expense of, of a lot of people who 
maybe weren't as sophisticated. Uh, and that's what's happened in this country, and I really the whole English-speaking world has fallen into this, and everybody else too. Um, and I even think the Chinese had problems with it. I mean, can you imagine? You know, em- embrace embrace capitalism and the worst aspect. This isn't really capitalism. This is I've always thought that uh, um, this is a, a corrupt form of feudalism. In the old days, the feudal lords. Uh, yeah, they collected the rents and because there wasn't anything else going on. There wasn't any capital, really. It was, it was, it was labor and landowners. <clears throat> and the landowners could collect uh, rents from their, from their tenants, from their, the peasants. But then they had to turn around and give that back in services. When, when feudalism worked, uh, they had to give it back in services, uh, back to the community to, in terms of protection. They were the police. They were the courts. They were the... Um, mediators, uh, and and then they had to give uh, use that to equip themselves to help the the kings uh, the, 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 to defend the country. So essentially, in those days, taxes all fell on land value. These were these were uh, uh, sh- sh- the, the feudal lords were the lords because they were the smart ones or the tough guys or they were they were capable of doing this. And they yes, they took land rents. They didn't earn them, but then they were required to turn around and put them back into the community. Of course, they got to keep a fair amount of that as payment for the services that they were rendering. Nobody had any problem with that. Feudal lords were loved when they were prop- when they when they kept their uh, to their feudal obligations from to, to the community below them and to the to the country above them. <clears throat> It was only when these guys got the idea, well, gee, we like this unearned income, but well, we don't like to have to pay these feudal dues. Uh, so uh, the history of taxation is all about, uh, at least the, the, you know, I think the European version of it, the English version of it, is the feudal lords, the landlords, figuring out ways to get uh, the governments to be paid for by out of revenues, out of sources other than their land rents. So today... Uh, in those days, it was pretty much 100% of all government function was paid for out of land rent. And today, it's uh, – I don't know what the, what the percentage in, is in this country. It's actually very, probably not even possible to, to determine what it is because we don't keep good records. I think the Australians, I understand, are keeping much better records. It's a, just a tiny shadow uh, of uh, what it used to be, the, maybe 10, 5, 10% out of land rents. Uh, uh, under the current tax regimes, and 90% on uh, out of the labor of, of people earned incomes out of labor and of, uh, of uh, on the back of real capital investment. This 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 means that the 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 idea of noblesse oblige is completely dead, and landowners, uh, the current landowners, never even had nobody nobody even thinks in these terms. These. Noblesse oblige means that that the the nobles were obliged to play by the rules. The rules were that if you were given the land by the king, that you then had the responsibility of serving the, the, the county or the community from which you drew land rents, and you did this by providing uh, you know protection from other marauding uh, uh, nobles. Uh, you kept the you kept the peace. You kept the law. You provided the courts and, and the police system and whatever other local. You helped build. The, you built the roads. You 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 did things to encourage industry uh, at that level, mostly agricultural. Uh, 
You got paid rents from that by your tenants who were living on your land. There were still plenty of commons in those days, so that after there were common lands, and uh, it wasn't all owned by uh, uh, individuals, so that you could run a cow on, on a common uh, pasture. Uh, <clears throat> you could go, and, and after, the, after the crops were harvested, the, the people had the right to go out and glean from the, you know, maybe there, there would be uh, straw and hay and, and, and uh, wheat that had been fallen into the, uh, on the ground. It wasn't harvested. People could go out and glean that. You had the right, uh, the, the, the peasants had the right to go into the forest and collect firewood. This was all common. These were the common rights. Uh, and in, in the English-speaking world, and I think probably, I don't know very much about Europe, but the English-speaking world, uh, there, there, was, there was a commonality you had to work. You had to pay the lo- the, the the lord. Uh, you probably might have to even pay him. If it probably wasn't in money, but it was in service and in kind. It was a, a share crop kind of situation. Maybe you had to work a couple of weeks a month, a, a year, to build build the roads or do whatever public uh, improvements there were. But nobody starved in those days. I, and I look in my own thinking as those were the good old days. Feudalism was the good old days. It wasn't a lot of civil rights. You couldn't. Do, you wouldn't have a right to to move away from, from where you lived, it turned out. Um, uh, and, the, and the Lord's uh, word was law. Uh, but there was no starvation. There was no, nobody, nobody had uh, economic problems unless the entire community had, had a problem, unless there was complete failure of all the crops. Then everybody suffered, including the Lord's, uh, because everybody had access. You know, you worked, and then you had access to the commons to, to, to supplement your, your work. Uh, long history of, of the enclosures of the commons going in England going back it took about 200 years to the place where in the 19th century uh, there was no commons anymore. Millions of people, well, hundreds of thousands of people were, uh, were forced off the land, were evicted from lands that uh, they couldn't get title to. These were the peasants. And where did they go? Well, they went into the they, they got on the roads, and the only had a place they had to go was to go to the cities. And, they, and this was now the beginning of the industrial area. And, oh, now here, here's all, this, uh, uh, all these human beings available to, to labor in the, in the newly created factories. That's kind of the, the, the short history of, of industrialization and where the, labor mark, where the labor power came from. It was forced off the land by landlords. So on this show, we've talked to Davos insiders, we've talked to the average everyday Aussie on the street, we've uh, had discussions with high-ranking economists, but I'm yet to have met anyone who's worked within the oil industry. Are you uh, allowed to speak about some of the things that went on within Chevron and perhaps give us some insights into one of the world's biggest organisations? Well, I, I really don't have any good inside information about it, <coughs> uh, but I have um, what any intelligent person can see. Um, and what I, what I saw was uh, uh, that here, were, here was a group of people and an organization dedicated to providing a, a good into the market, the oil products, gasoline. <coughs> and these people were very good at what they were doing. Um, uh, I never was privy to anything at the higher levels. Of course, Chevron always made a lot of money. And like every other corporation in, uh, in the world, uh, um, uh, Chevron had an enormous amount of real capital investment 
uh, in 7,000 or so service stations that they built they, over the years, and they kept remodeling them and, and consolidating them. And each of these stations cost a million-plus dollars to build and more. And as the time went on, I was there for about uh, 15, 16 years. <clears throat> these things were incredibly expensive. This was just this was real capital invested in tanks in the ground, uh, and th- and then as time went on, more expensive uh, tanks that wouldn't leak, that had leak detectors in them. We were very committed to that. So I said, "Well, wow, we, this we are actually uh, walking the talk of cleaning up the environment." In the past, yeah, we let ta- we put tanks in the ground and they leaked, but now and laws were passed that required us to clean it up, and we did. Uh, we probably wouldn't have done it. No state, no no gas company would have done this unless they were required to. But then they were all required to do this. So then we put good, you know, capital. It was it, it, capital into into that proper kind of technology to do this. I think that made a huge difference in the pollution caused by underground tanks. Uh, we were certainly committed to that. Huge, huge investment in in refining capacity, in in tank all the incredible fleet of trucks and necessary to carry the gasoline to deliver it to the service stations incredible safety record that we had i i was i was really impressed when i got when i got to work there how really committed people were to doing that part of the business the other part and that and all of that was actual money and effort expended and that was all earned whatever came back from that was earned income that was labor uh, and uh, use of labor and capital to produce a, a, a result, all earned, all deserved. The other aspect of Chevron and any other company that owns and exploits natural resources is the ownership of oil in the ground, oil and gas. <clears throat> and uh, now Chevron, like every other company, spent tons of money to explore. Now, this was a real capital investment. It's not easy to find this stuff. So the, the, here, again, this was a, a real capital investment. Uh, and then for, but when all was said and done, now they, now they have found the oil and it's in the ground. Before it's been touched, you know, it's been, it's been located, uh, and, and all of that just up to that point, that's all of a cost of production. All of the stuff I've been talking about, this is a real cost of real production. To find, When you pull the oil out of the ground, uh, and then you have to – then you have to refine it. All of that is uh, is a real effort that has to be paid for. Um, I, and I agree that I think we need to do all kinds of things for alternative energy, but insofar as we're doing this, <coughs> we need to, this is how it's working. Um, and I'm not defending Chevron or any of the other, any of these oil companies saying that this is what should be done or that they weren't complicit in screwing around with the, uh, you know, the whole possibility of alternative energy. I, I'm not talking about that. Um, but insofar as we were actually doing this stuff that people wanted, in their, they wanted, to, they needed to have gasoline for their cars and other oil products. <clears throat> once you once you have to pull the stuff out of the ground, now you have a real cost of production. Uh, but the the oil in the ground, once it was discovered, began to have, and instantly when it was found, had a a, a market value, untouched. Uh, and th- on that that value in the ground. Uh, was completely created by the community. And the whole point of it is when you, when you pull this stuff out of the ground and you do all the, the real work that's necessary to, to actually deliver it to a gas station, uh, you're going to recover all the costs of production, which need to be recovered, uh, labor and capital costs, and then you're going rec- to charge 
you're going to charge more than that. And the more than that is, is a collection of community-created land value because oil is land. Anything, the natural universe, aside from the dry land that we talk about as land, oil is a natural part of the land. It's, and that value is a, a value created by the community. And the reason that, that oil companies want to do this is that that's where they make their money. This is where the, the profit is made uh, by collecting a value that the community creates. Many states, many governments uh, in, in, in this country and around the world charge t- uh, severance taxes. So some of that value is taken back. As I was saying before, uh, uh, Alaska has a, a pretty significant severance tax, and they use that. that uh, that's a collection uh, taken back to the community of a community-created value. It's used to pay in part for community services and, as I said, also said before, as a guaranteed income to people. So I understand that there's no sales tax because of this. There's no sales tax uh, uh, in in Alaska. So the whole point of it is of having a state or uh, any government take back community-created land value, they can eliminate these other taxes, all of which fall directly on labor or on capital. Uh, and the, and the, uh, the so apparently in California, there is no severance tax for oil pumped in the state. Many other states have, there's different laws all over different states. Uh, for California not to be charging a severance tax to take back some of its community-created land value in oil is, is utterly insane given the, um, the fact that is, if, you, if you follow the, uh, any of the news regarding California is that we have this huge budget, budget deficit with no real way of solving it. It's something like $40 billion, I think, uh, these days. <coughs> and uh, a, a, an oil severance tax would go a long way to uh, closing the gap. Um, Without burdening, you know, without without burdening Chevron or any any oil company, that that kind of severance tax is for the purpose of collecting a value created by the community. It, it at the uh, when you do that, you still allow the company to to recoup their actual production costs, and all we're, uh, uh, severance tax merely takes you know some percent. It's usually not a hundred percent. Uh, I don't know what the severance tax uh, percentages are, of, uh, but my guess is that they're 10, 20 percent of the community-created value of the oil on the ground, leaving a huge, the, the bulk of that unearned income in the hands of the oil companies. We could take more of it. And when we did that, uh, well, <clears throat> let me go back. Uh, the way we tax uh, Chevron and every other businessman, if you build something, in this state and in every other state where there's a property tax, as soon as you build it, now you have a property tax on the thing you built. So <clears throat> Cal- uh, Chevron is paying, its, in terms of property tax, uh, uh, that, that alone, it's huge. Uh, and it's, it's a penalty on what they do, and they have to pass that cost on to, that's part of their cost of production. All taxes on capital are, are passed forward in the cost of goods to us. So anybody who says, Oh, let's tax the corporations. If they don't understand their economics, which is essentially, I don't think any folks who are saying that really do understand their economics. If you're talking about taxing their capital, it will be passed on in the price of the good to the final consumer, which is you and me. 
So it doesn't make any sense to really to to demand that that the Dane capitalists pay because they're going to pass it on to us. They don't really care about that. They they do it, and they've done it. They they understand this. They they may they may complain about these laws, but when it's all said and done, they, they say, okay, we'll pay the, we'll pay it. We'll just pass it on. The only the, the, the only tax that cannot be passed on in higher prices is the tax on land value. So uh, now this is a pretty interesting and, and difficult subject to talk about, and I, I don't think I'm going to go into that, but every, suffice it to say that every economist, whoever has looked at that issue, under, agrees that a tax on land value, and those, w- including the, the, the community-created value oil in the ground before it's pumped, <clears throat> which would be captured in a severance tax, that is a tax on land value, cannot be passed on in the final cost of the good. And this is an, this is part of the argument for taxing land values, in all their different forms, which is in, it's the best kept secret of economics. Uh, and everybody complaining about taxation are rightfully complaining about it as insofar as it falls on, on capital, real capital investment, things that people actually have to come up with and, and build and do, and on labor. Those are the, the 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 argument against those kind of taxes is absolutely correct. They are destructive. They destroy incentive, and all of them, in so far as they fall on producers, are all passed on to the final consumer. The only tax you can't pass on is the land value tax. So, uh, the the whole idea of taxing land values to take back to the community the the value that community gives to land, and on top of it, it can't be passed on, is so powerful, and such an eye opener. And that, that was what got my attention 35 years ago. The light, I mean, really, the light went on for me intellectually uh, uh, in my life. Is, oh, this, is the, this is the way out of, our, uh, an, uh, out of this incredible confrontation between the left and the right. The, 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 the right is correct. The Republicans in this country are right. The conservatives are correct in complaining about taxation insofar as it falls on labor and capital. Somehow they don't manage to mention that the tax on land values is a good tax, <clears throat> Uh, so perhaps there's they're just hiding. I think they're hiding something, but you know that's my favorite conspiracy. Folks on on the left apparently don't understand their economics enough to think well taxing everything doesn't matter what you tax, and they're absolutely incorrect in that regard. But it, if if taxing the one thing that is correct to tax uh, and would be the, would be economic justice is this community created land value. So I'm not quite sure why the why the the, the left doesn't quite. Uh, um, make that argument. It's a very powerful. It's it's the most powerful argument one can make. And anybody who wants to argue with a in public with a Republican can say, yeah, you don't have to argue with them. You're correct. You're absolutely right. Except that this this tax on land value would be the tax. Now, to to actually get in a debate with a with a conservative, they'll lose that debate every time. There there is no argument to be made against taxing land values especially since you can't pass them on. And uh, there's all kinds of reason to argue to bring it up because you can agree with 90% of what they're saying. Yeah, taxes taxes are destructive. Let's get rid of them. But let's have proper taxation. And anybody who's in a place, this discussion in California around the, the whole business of our huge tax deficit, not discussing these issues to me is... I mean, it's, I, I don't really know what to make of that. Is it just incompetence? 
is it is it do these people really know uh, if they if they know what I'm talking about then they have to be uh, they really have to be pulling a trick on their own mind to say well I'm I'm just going to argue for the landlord the earth lord uh, I don't you know I I, I don't un- quite understand. <laughs> Uh, anybody who says that they're for the people and for the community and for the welfare of the, of the environment uh, have to uh, – they ha- you have to really start talking in these terms. Enough said. Thank you very much, Wendell Fitzgerald. Great to have you on The Renegade Economist. Thank you.